Hey there. Welcome back to Crudex. This is episode two in our series about a cold case, the murder of Sandy Terrell and Debbie Merritt. On our last episode, we went over the bare bones of the case. And now, on this episode, I felt like it was time to dig into the investigation. So, I've been torn on how to lay out this story. We're working with two different timelines. We've got the investigation in the mid to late 80s, and then we've got our current investigation now in the 2020s. Both phases of the investigation uncover important clues that led and lead us closer to knowing who might have done this. But then I asked myself, what is the most important aspect of the investigation that I want you, the listener, to know first? This case is a winding tale with lots of twists and turns and hidden secrets. Our main objective, of course, is finding justice for Debbie and Sandy. And I feel like, after knowing what I'm figuring out and learning what I've learned and knowing what I know, one of the ways to give them justice is by telling their stories, who they were, where they were from, who they loved and who loved them. The caricatures the media painted of the women back then only objectified them, they dehumanized them. They possibly even hindered the investigation by perpetuating the notion that they, because of their choices, deserved what happened to them, that they brought it upon themselves. It's classic victim blaming. That was the case in the 80s. That was the case in the 90s. That's still the case to this day, Um, not as much as it was back then. But there is more to Debbie and Sandy than just the story. They were more than just two women who got caught up in the conflict and chaos of a man's world, chewed up and spit out the remains of their story as shallow as the graves they found them in. No, that's not their story. That's just a story. The story that the media outlets back then cared to tell. And Debbie and Sandy were, and are, worth more than that. Especially to those who knew and loved them. They were humans with human stories, human lives, and they mattered to people. So, on this episode, I'd like to share with you what I learned about them, not just about their deaths, but about their lives. I'm Jen Schaefer, and this is Crude Axe, Murdered in Oil Town, Who Killed Debbie and Sandy? It took a few days to find Candy, victim Sandy Terrell's twin sister. Her name at the time of her sister's murder was Candy Crawford. So I typed that in on People Finder and I ran a few names, Candy Crawford, Candace Crawford, Candace Strickland, so on. And finally, I came across a name and age that matched. I looked that name up on Facebook and the picture matched what I believe Sandy would have looked like 
if her life wasn't stolen from her. I reached out via Messenger, and to my surprise, she messaged me back. I told her a little bit about what I wanted to do, the story I wanted to tell, how I never forgot about this case and her sister and how my dad felt the same way and that he was the investigator on the case. So she agreed to meet with me and even stated that she would bring along with her Tammy Terrell, Sandy's daughter, who was only 15 years old when she lost her mother. We met up for lunch a few days later at Outback Steakhouse in Baytown off I-10 and Garth Road. I'm very familiar with the area. It's right where the San Jacinto Mall used to be. And that is a mall that my generation knows very well. When we were kids in the early 80s, we played at Physical Whimsical in the mall. It was a carpeted playground upstairs from the food court as preteens. We had teen nightclubs in this mall, Club Soda and Club Curiosity. I make little posts on Facebook as like little homages to it with kids in their, their 80s attire and 80s dances. We spent our days and evening just walking around the mall, just shopping for clothes, eating at Casa Ole, catching a dollar movie. They actually had movies that cost a dollar back then, kids. But the San Jacinto Mall belonged to our generation. It was our playground. It was, it was our home away from home. So a year ago, they tore the mall down. And all that's left of it is a flatland of concrete and faded memories. The end of an era, for sure. But also a blank slate for something new. Or at least a new version of an old scene. We shall see. But across Garth Road on I-10, from where Sanderson Mall used to be, is Outback. And that's where I met Candy and Tammy. And we shook hands upon seeing each other in the parking lot. And then we entered the restaurant. And we sat at a booth in the far corner, away from the noise of the restaurant. We all three ordered iced tea. We all three added our Southern sweetness to it. And then immediately, we got to talking about their loved one, Sandy Terrell. They opened up with some hesitancy. You could tell there's still pain after all these years. Sadness quietly resides behind their eyes. You can also tell a part of their spirit died back in 1985. They were surprised this case hadn't been forgotten about altogether, and they were pleased that someone was willing to listen and tell the true story of their beloved Sandy, the person beyond the headlines. And this is what Candy unfolded to me. And, and then, of course, my research filled in all the rest. But this is what she said, and she laid it out from the very beginning. Sandy and Candy were born June 15, 1949, to Francis and Claude Alfred Strickland in Newelton, Louisiana. The family moved around a lot during their childhood, but in their teen years, they finally settled in Baytown, Texas. Mom and dad worked in the medical field, and the girls attended Lee High School, home of the Ganders, and they were there, and they graduated in 1968. Candy described her sister as being very popular, 
and she was well-liked. She described her as funny and outgoing. She was very smart and very approachable, and she had a vivacious, full-mouth smile that so many people were drawn to. She was the type of person who never met a stranger, and she had lots of friends, and she was very well-known, but of course, no one knew her like her sister Candy. Candy said that she was the quiet one. She was the observer of the two. She was more reserved and cautious, while Sandy was outgoing and talked to anyone and everyone. But the girls were very close. They dressed alike. They enjoyed many of the same things. In high school, they often went on double dates, even triple dates with friends. It was while in high school Sandy Terrell met the man who would later become her husband and the father of her children, a guy by the name of Jimmy Terrell from Liberty, Texas. Soon after they met, they got married September 9th, 1967. They had James, and then a few years later, they had their daughter Tammy. Getting married and starting a family young was common in those days, especially in small towns, and they were no different. But they were a very tight-knit family unit. They spent loads of time together. Even after Candy went off and got married herself, Frances, Alfred, Candy, and Sandy, they all remained very close. They were a solid family unit up until the day that she went missing. And then there's Debbie the other victim. Debbie had a starkly different life from Sandy and Candy. Debbie's mother, Rosina, was of Irish descent. She was born in Castle Rock, Ireland. And then her dad, a man named Lyle Nifong, was from South Bend, Indiana. Somewhere along the way, the couple met and they got married and they had Debbie on August 15th, 1950. The family settled in Houston, Texas, and this is when and where Debbie faced a dreadful experience, one that possibly reshaped her life forever. In 1958, her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. With limited treatment options back then, the cancer metastasized quickly, and just four short years later, it ended up taking her life. On June 19, 1962, Rosina was only 39 years old when she passed away, and poor Debbie was only 12. A few years later, after she passed, Lyle and Debbie moved to Baytown. She attended Lee High School with the twins, Sandy and Candy. Lyle met and married a woman named Ramona, and they had two boys together, Lyle Leroy Jr. and Lance. Then a strong family unit was beginning to form for them, and things seemed to be going great until a few years later when illness befell the family again. Debbie's father, Lyle, the patriarch of the family, was diagnosed with colon cancer. And then he died on March 28, 1972. Debbie was only 22 years old when she lost him. And then at 22, she was an orphan. She had no mother and she had no father. So that year that that happened, Debbie met and married a man with the last name Brown, but that only lasted a year. And then after her divorce in 1973, she married a man named Gary Merritt, 
in Chambers County, Texas, on August 14, 1974. So a lot happened to Debbie, and then you've got Sandy with, with her life and everything that's going on with her. A handful of years later, they reconnected, and Sandy was with Jimmy, and Debbie was with Gary, and the four of them would hang out together. Gary's family comes from a long line of fishermen and shrimpers, and he had a boat. And so the couples would take the boat out, and they would have fun. They often hung out together. And on the outside, everything seemed fine until one day. It just wasn't. Debbie divorced Gary on July 20th, 1983, when she was 32 years of age. A couple years after that, Sandy left Gary, but they were never technically divorced while she was still alive. Paperwork concluded their divorce was a few years later on August 20th, 1986, almost a year after her disappearance in 1985. After the two women left their husbands, they moved into the same apartment complex, Quail Hollow Apartments in Baytown. They began living lives that were starkly different from the ones that they lived before. Debbie landed a job at ProAd, a company that made patches and logos for jackets and hats for small businesses and for companies, even for the police department. It was owned by a man named Mickey Crawford, who was tied into the nightlife himself, and he was also tied into a tight-knit group of sketchy local bar owners. Uh, Debbie started to go out to those bars and running around with those nefarious people. And Mickey was all a part of that as well, and we will go more into him later. But the thing is, Debbie doing this, you know, husband, 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 striking it out on her own, trying to make a name for herself, doing what she could in her small town with limited means and not a lot of education, it's not hard to understand why she went out and kind of got caught up in the nightlife. I asked Debbie's brother, Debbie's younger brother Lance, to give me three words that described his sister, and he said strong, ambitious, and hard-headed. And I at once thought of that fiery Irish girl who lost her mother at 12 years old, I think of her grief and how more than likely it was mismanaged because back then we didn't understand that kids needed help processing those types of trauma. I don't know if you've lost a parent. I, thank God, have not. And my heart goes out with you if you have, especially if you were a child and you lost your parent. When a child loses a parent, it really does impact their social development, how they handle emotions, their self-esteem, and it causes a fracturing. Their lives are split in two. There's the life before the loss, and then there's the life after the loss, and that splitting can likewise cause extreme compartmentalization and even detachment from emotions. That disassociation it comes from pain and a heightened anxiety, a fear of not having their needs met, not being loved, being abandoned. Oftentimes, kids grow into adults who have a hard time sustaining healthy relationships. And upon looking at all this and reading what I've read and hearing what I heard about Debbie, this seems to be the case with her. And possibly, 
why she sought reprieve in the bars and the nightlife and dating around and with men who were unavailable. A few years after Sandy left her husband, she joined Debbie out in the nightlife, and they, of course, mingled with the same friends. It became a regular thing, and this is not uncommon for singles in their 30s. When the women moved to the Quail Hollow apartment building, they were just a stone's throw away from one another, which made things very convenient. Candy Sandy's twin sister also lived in the apartment complex along with her husband. She didn't join them in the nightlife because she, like her parents, worked in the medical field and she had to be up early in the morning. So she typically stayed home instead of joining the ladies out. Candy told me, though, it was nice living so close to one another. Sandy's uh, daughter, Tammy, even recalled babysitting Debbie's two little girls back then. So Sandy, at the time, she worked two jobs. So while Debbie worked at ProAd, Sandy worked two jobs as a cashier at local grocery stores. She cashed checks and helped the store balance their books. She discovered at that time she had a knack for bookkeeping, and she even enrolled in Lee College to get her certification, a certification she was denied ever finishing because of what happened to her. Candy and Tammy talked about how smart Sandy was, and they recalled the times while watching Jeopardy in the living room, Sandy would be in the kitchen cooking, calling out the answers, and she never got one wrong. Like I did with Lance, Debbie's brother, I asked Candy to give me three words that described her sister. She said to me the following, sunshine, talkative, and outgoing. But then she wanted to throw in a few other words, specifically empath and a little naive. She said Sandy was the type of person who always wanted to help anyone in any situation, no matter how bad the situation was. She also saw the good in everyone, and could see past their flaws, no matter how dangerous they were or how bad their flaws were. And Candy believes that is what may have gotten her killed. And why she was even drawn to certain people to begin with, people like Debbie, looking for love in all the wrong places. Candy added that Sandy had a heightened intuition. She said the day that they went missing, she popped over to her apartment to say goodbye, and Sandy wrote her a note that allowed her to take Candy to the doctor if she needed to, if something happened. But then Sandy told her something else. She said she had an ill feeling about the trip, that something in her gut was telling her not to go. Candy advised her to listen to her gut And so Sandy, whenever Debbie showed up, Sandy actually tried to back out of the trip at the last minute. But then Debbie pulled her aside and she pleaded. Sandy, being the compassionate one, was easily convinced back into going. Candy said she walked them down to Debbie's 1982 Silver Dodson. And then she gave me an interesting clue. Something that even got overlooked because I didn't read anything about it. And I even later told my dad and he didn't know about it. And I thought this was very interesting. Candy said 
Debbie had a box of ball caps in her car that needed to be delivered to her work pro-ad before they left for their trip. They were right there in the trunk of her car. She remembers it vividly as they were packing up their luggage. Mind you, when Debbie's car was found in 1986, it was reported that nothing was in it. So, did they stop at Pro-Ad that evening before they went missing to drop them off? Because that would be a pit stop on the way to what happened to them, maybe of the place where what happened to them happened. Who knows, but it's something to think about. I wrote that question in my notes to revisit later, and we definitely will be revisiting that later. Candy then said, after they loaded their stuff up, she hugged the two women, she told them goodbye, and the two women hopped in the car and drove off. She didn't realize then that that was the last time she'd ever see either of them alive and that her sister Sandy's intuition was right. Tammy, Sandy's daughter, was only 15 at the time of her mother's disappearance. She lost her mother in such a tragic way. The thought of her seeing her mother's face every time she looked at her Aunt Candy is just heartbreaking. She told me it was strange back then when I looked at my Aunt Candy. It was like looking into the eyes of my mother. And now she's all I've got left. After she said that, they looked at each other with affection and gratitude that was so real and also so sad. Candy went on to talk about her own strong intuition. She knew that Sunday when the women hadn't returned home that something was wrong. Call it twin tuition, if you will. She said, I had chills that day. That Sunday, they were supposed to come home. We were watching the football game on TV that afternoon, and no matter what I did, I couldn't get warm. I knew then and there something bad had happened. And then she never showed up, and it just wasn't like her to do that. She would never forget to check in with us. She would never, ever want us to worry about her. When March 1987 rolled around and they found Debbie and Sandy's bodies in a Chambers County marsh, Candy said she wasn't surprised. She already knew in her heart of hearts that her sister was gone, but what did surprise her was that nasty rumors would be used to scrutinize her, and they would be used as validation for her murder. And then on top of it, her killer or killers would never be found, and that her mother and father would pass away without ever knowing what happened to their daughter. It would go cold, as cold as she was that day that she went missing for good. Tammy said, not knowing who did this hurts us all still. To this day, we just want answers before the rest of us are gone too. Debbie's family feels exactly the same way. It seems that stories about the ladies frequenting certain local bars with certain local people, as well as the rumors about the game Hunt and Chase, were a way to create and perpetuate a bad reputation of the women. 
I asked my dad about the rumors, and he said the sex game stories were all a media exaggeration. He was surprised when the case was presented that way on TV. I asked Candy if her twin sister was even into that sort of thing, and she said absolutely not. She was trying to work things out with her husband, and it just wasn't her nature. She was a really good person, and she really cared about what her family and others thought about her. She tried to make so many other things work than having to resort to that sort of thing. After looking into what she said, she and Jemmy were still married when the murders occurred, and so what Candy said tracks. Plus, I discovered that this game did exist, but the women had to buy into the game at $500 a pop. It didn't make sense that a woman of limited means working two jobs at grocery stores doesn't just throw away $500 to do something like that. Not when she was the breadwinner and had bills to pay and a daughter to care for. There's just no way she could do that. Not by choice, at least. Candy said Sandy hardly even drank. She would order one margarita when she'd go out and it would always melt down to the bottom before she had a chance to finish it. She was too busy country dancing. She loved country music and she loved to go out dancing. Just like many of the women and even moms you know, Sandy and Debbie liked to go out. They liked to go country dancing. They were both attractive. So of course men asked them to dance and invited them out on dates. Just as the George Strait song sings, excuse me while I think you got my chair. Going out country dancing is a tradition in Texas. Lots of us women go out with our friends. We dance with strangers. We go out together and we leave together. Sandy and Debbie were no different. The only thing different, of course, from now to back then, was the time era. You know, that was 1985. And what you'll learn is small Texas oil towns during that time, 1985, from 82 well on to 87. During that time, there was a big, huge oil glut, and people were hurting for money, desperate even. And men were not the only ones to go to extreme measures to get it. Women were looking for a way out with very little opportunity. The best opportunity was to meet a man to take care of you, especially if you're from working class. You know, if the women got tangled up in the nightlife out looking for a new man to date, a new man to meet and go out with, to make a better life for themselves back then in 85, could you blame them? I don't. And I'm sure you listeners don't. But people back then surely did. While conducting my research for this story, I read article after article of let's blame the victims. It's what you hear often in rape cases when the woman is to blame for what happened to her. Perhaps it was what she was wearing or how flirty she was or what lifestyle she led. What did she do to bring this upon herself? We know now that that is victim blaming and what perpetrators say to excuse their terrible behavior. Our society is learning a lot. We're learning a lot from the Me Too movement. We're learning a lot about each other. Men are learning, women are learning. 
And it's something that Debbie and Sandy could have benefited from back then. But back then, it was different. Back then, 1985, people were different. Their thoughts were different. Here's the thing. The families losing them the way that they did was a knife to their soul. It was a stab to their happiness. And then the twist of that knife was the stories perpetuated by the media, all in the name of selling more papers and getting more ratings. The sex games, the fact that they were party women and the good old boys, it's lazy thinking and it's even lazier investigative reporting. These women, they so recklessly disparaged, were daughters, sisters, mothers. They were hardworking, smart, and caring family women. The focus should be, the focus should have always have been on what happened to them. Why and what they knew or shouldn't have known about dangerous people from those bars and nightclubs men who possibly asked them to dance. Those men were in a toxic cycle of power, money, industry, and control, and they preyed upon poor women in their desperation just to get by and maybe get out. Women without choices. History was and is repeating itself in the hand-me-down remains of the systems that were put in place some time ago, all in the name of power, control, money, and legacy. The nepotism and patriarchy of those times is slowly eroding, yet it was still alive and well in the 1980s Bible Belt. Counties like Chambers and towns like Baytown became lost in that power cycle the wash-rinse-spin network that has been running things since the beginning. Now, what we're dealing with now is them trying to grasp a hold of what is left. It makes you wonder, were these crude and lascivious tales about the women perpetuated by law enforcement and the media just to distract us from the truth. Because exposing the underbelly of these networks that we have learned about and the secrets of the men who run them will be their downfall and they know it. Their secrets are violent in nature and I'd like to remind them that these violent delights have violent ends and secrets have teeth. Now that we know more about our victims, it's time to examine the suspects. The men and their biting secrets, who they were and what those secrets were in the town where young girls' dreams go up and smoke. And we'll talk about that on our next episode. For now, I'm Jen Schaefer, the researcher, writer, and the one who narrates this show. We are produced by Russell Dunlap and managed by Amy Dunlap. The opening song is by Two Star Symphony. Check them out online. You can check us out online at www.crudax.com. 
and you can like and subscribe and do all the things. But the most important thing that you need to do now is come back for part three. This is going to be about our investigation, where it was then, where it's heading, and who the people are on our list. So come on back to find out who killed Debbie and Sandy. This is Murder in an Old Town. See you next time.